Welcome to my podcast. taking you into the world of Funga. Today I am interviewing Carsten Höller, one of the most important and innovative artists of our time. Carsten was born in Brussels to German parents and currently lives between Stockholm and Ghana. Höller has a doctorate in agricultural science and applies lots of his scientific curiosity to his work as an artist, exploring human behavior and manipulating perception. From psychedelic reindeer urine to twisting slides and vision-flipping goggles, his work prompts viewers to question how they see and understand the world around them. I had the great fortune of meeting Carsten through my boyfriend Alex, who worked together with him on Brutalism, his newest endeavor into the culinary world. Well, Carsten, thank you so, so much for, for being here. I appreciate it with all my heart. You were truly one of my, my wish guests. Candidates. My wish candidates when I first made my dream list. Um, not only because you've created some of the most iconic artworks, but also because I find there's a lot of parallels between the feelings that your works produce and and that of a psychedelic trip. In as in as much as you know, your works often twist perceptions and also make us question the way that we perceive the world around us. And also, you know, either you directly reference time and space or through your artworks, time and space is manipulated in, in a certain way. And that's, of course, very characteristic of, of a psychedelic trip. And then, I mean, lastly, I don't know if lastly, because there's probably many other comparisons, but you once said in an interview that um, you like to make works that you cannot talk about in the sense that you... Through your artworks, you know, you create tools of communication where people are able to, to have conversations non-verbally and that um, contain contradictory information at the same time. And because language is something that's linear, it's not able to transmit that experience. And when it comes to psychedelics, I mean, that's probably the most commonly said thing about it, that, that language fails us in that regard and we basically don't have the words to describe what it is that we feel. But you can say the same thing about, say, <clears throat> the skin of another person. It's very hard to describe. If I would tell you, uh, <clears throat> my girlfriend, for instance, skin has this and this uh, haptive quality. I, I, I just thought about it this morning, that's why I take it up now. Yeah. Or people who like to drink a glass of wine, and they can say, yeah, it smells like a you know, it's, it has a taste of freshly mowed grass with a hint of hazelnut. I'm not this kind of guy. So <laughs> no, I agree with <laughs> That's true, but it is probably easier to describe, um, you know, some, a characteristic about someone or uh, the taste of something than it is to, to describe an experience that is really, you know, out, out of your body, out of your, your rationality, basically. But don't you think if you would live in this experience all the time, and this, what we do now, would be the rare state of the mind and the rare state of uh, experiencing your surroundings. Wouldn't it be the same level of complication? 
wouldn't it? If you would constantly live in that state? Yes, if you would be constantly in a psychedelic state, if you want to call it like this, we would probably have found the language for it in the meantime. I agree. Language is not something that happened overnight. That's true. I believe, I don't know. That is true. Guessing. But that will never happen. (laughs) Not in this life. (laughs) I don't know. Well, well, maybe in some way, because I think, you know, like, if my body would fail me in the future and I'm really old and uh, can't move around anymore and and then I think you could probably because you know it would be interesting to to try out a few things and also to maybe extend Absolutely. the state yeah and see how it is to live in it so as an old person maybe sitting in a wheelchair it could be a good thing to do no I think absolutely and especially before you know you're about to die i think that's a that's a very good moment to to experiment with psychedelics on the way to death on your way to death yeah to help you to to cross that bridge Hmm. because one of the things that it really does is it takes away the fear of dying i'm not very afraid of dying generally you're not interesting i used to be now that i've had a few experiences less less so yeah. You mean near-death experiences? No, now that I've had a few bigger psychedelic experiences, oh. where I really felt that like that loss of fear in, in that regard. Mm. Why, why are you not afraid of dying? I'm more curious about... <laughs> what, what's I want to know how it's like. <laughs> then you can't do anything with this information because it's, uh, it's going to evaporate. But um, it's can call it just the ultimate experience sure i'm curious about all kind of things that we don't understand that's actually the main i'm not so cu- curious about expanding uh like uh, you know consciousness or or changing the way how we perceive the world i'm more in- interested in things that you can't explain like right. life for instance <coughs> and death and mm-hmm. fun and time there's many. There are, there are many. So we have like a, <clears throat> you know, we live in a, in a world that we explain in a certain way, and we've been, we, we I think we came quite far. Like, you know, we have different methods, uh, and ma- maybe using psychedelics is it's, it's one of them. But um, that's not the point. It's it's more that what when it gets interesting for me is when you when you understand that. There's no, none of these methods would work to bring you any further in this matter. Mm-hmm. As if this would be something inbuilt. So like one of them also being consciousness, for instance, I think it's inbuilt that you shouldn't understand. It's interesting that scientists have been trying all the time since, <coughs> um, uh, who was it, Francis Quick, one of the two discoverers of the DNA molecule who said like, but he said it already a while ago. He said in 20 years, we, we are going to fully explain what consciousness is. So they, dis- they when did they describe um, DNA molecule? I think it was in 1958 or something like that. So he must have said that maybe 10, 20 years later. And, and now it's 2023 and, and, and we're, we're still, still not, we, we're not even close to anything. We, we, we know that some kind of neurons uh, simultaneously fire yeah. But it doesn't explain consciousness, it just says what happens, you know. You can as well say I'm, I'm, I'm conscious because 
I wake up and my consciousness is, is suddenly there and wasn't there before when I was sleeping. So this kind of things somehow are meant not to be understood. Is consciousness not more that I am aware of my, my external and my internal existence and that that's also the main difference between what distinguishes a human from an animal? But animals is another thing we don't understand. <laughs> I think there's not even, there's not, it's more interesting, what I want to say is, it's more interesting to understand that you can't understand this right. and the implications of it than to try to, you know, find a way of coming closer to an understanding what that could possibly be. I agree. That's yeah. actually something we don't do very much to understand our incapacities. Mm -hmm. We think our mind and our methods and our technologies are so great <clears throat> that they would encompass everything. But I strongly doubt this. I think there, this is a, an, an error. <clears throat> um, all this that I just mentioned just, you know, can hold uh, or grasp a certain amount of something else uh, or some something bigger but the, the other part of it um, we will never even have a, a glimpse of it mm -hmm. it's just there is that why you've also focused a lot on mushrooms in your work yeah because in some way they you know i'm because i'm so interested in the things you can't understand yeah. i also look for monuments of like monuments of Exactly. They're incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. So mushrooms are very good because they are somehow monumental, even most of them are quite small, <clears throat> but they're monumental in many other ways and they also stand for the, like, because my training is evolutionary biology and then I worked a lot with plants and insects and how they communicate mm -hmm. or even try to avoid communication. And, <clears throat> and so I'm trained to look at the, the natural world in my former life as a scientist, I'm trained to look at it from, a, from an adaptive perspective. So things that you see, they make sense. A flower makes sense because, you know, it's colorful, <clears throat> because it's attracting insects to, um, you know, pollinate another flower and carry, carry the pollen. Uh, mushrooms have a function too, but it's rather limited really, if you think about it. What we call mushroom, like the fruiting bodies of of this larger organism, they only come out of the earth in order to spread the spores and it's mainly by wind, rarely by other animals, but it's uh, also existing. So in these cases you find scents, like, um, I don't know how this mushroom is called, the one, there's one that smells really like excrements that is attracting flies, Phallus impudicus in Latin, what is the English name for it? Stinkhorn, exactly. Or the truffle which wants to be eaten mm -hmm. in order the spores to be spread uh, through, say, wild boars um, that would then, you know, put them somewhere in the forest, uh, through the excrements also. But most of the mushrooms that you see are completely useless in terms of what kind of colors they have, what kind of forms they have, and especially what kind of ingredients they have. But then you look at this variety and you think, what is it? Is it just like pure chance and you know the necessity of change and recombination of genes that produces this 
enormous variety of of forms and shapes and ingredients or is it something else that we don't understand now, i think we haven't explored that area enough and now i mean they're discovering paul stamets for example he's got this this very interesting ted talk where he talks about six ways that mushrooms can save the world um, so i actually do think that there is they have features that that we might not yet understand or have studied I just read the other day that there was a mushroom that they just found that, that is capable of decomposing plastic in, in 140 days. So I do think there's still a world to be discovered when it comes to, to mushrooms. Absolutely, because like scientifically speaking, you're totally correct, because there has not been done so much, because they have right. been neglected, because animals uh, <clears throat> are maybe more interesting uh, from a kind of food perspective at least. And then also they seem to be closer to us. Mm -hmm. And then you come to plants also because of the food perspective. And then even the mushrooms probably you, you approach from the food perspective yeah. or from the psychedelic perspective. But then you realize, wow, there's another whole world out there, like another kingdom that we know comparatively little of. That's true. But then I want to say, like, we, even if we make like a big effort now, yeah. we will still only know little. But it's a start. Yes. And, and there's certainly more interest around this topic. Mm. It's growing and growing. But it's interesting to me that you use the fly agaric so much. I mean, I have an idea of why, but I would like you to maybe explain in your own words why it is that this mushroom is so present in your works. And also, I know that you've, you've tried it. And I would be interested to, to hear your experience of that because I've heard from some other people that have tried it that's not the nicest sensation so no we can start from from that and no i think because um <clears throat> i've been once in uh, petropavlovsk that's the capital of kamchatka so that's uh, this penin peninsula in russia uh, above japan northeast russia and yeah. that was long before the war with ukraine and um <clears throat> This part of the world is known to probably have had the last shamans that were using fly agarics in the in the ceremonies. Um, uh, so it has disappeared. Apparently, there's nobody doing this anymore. It has been replaced by vodka and other things. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> from travelers um, uh, from the 19th century and even 20th century, especially from Strahlenberg, who he was a Swede with a, uh, who wrote in German at this time, but he had also his German name. And he described um, how this mushroom was used, because it was not just used that you, you know, you, you, you would do with the so-called magic mushrooms, but you have to use it in special ways, because it has three, uh, at least three, three known <coughs> psychoactive components, and they, interfere with your body in a way that is not necessarily um, very nice. Pleasant, so, yeah. Now, so from my, my own personal experience, it was always related to vomiting, which is not very nice, and yeah. then to some kind of comatose sleep, like really deep sleep, and no matter where you were, if it would be a public place, you would have to lay down and sleep. Um, but you ate it directly? I tried different methods, okay, but they, the they all kind of resulted more or less in the same result. And then when you wake up from the sleep, you don't even know how long you slept. Was it 10 minutes, 10 hours, you don't know. And then out of the seven times I did this, 
six times I didn't feel anything except this. But one time I'm, I'm singing, uh, because I filmed myself, uh, I was alone with my video camera. I can sing in a way that I would not be able to reproduce now because I could only do that in that state. Interesting. And that was the start of you then using that mushroom? This was before you, you, you no, did your first No, it was the other way around. First I was inter interested in the mushroom and, and then, then I said I have to... But it has a lot to, there's a lot of different ways, uh, things that play a role. One is like, where, where's the mushroom coming from? Which plant or tree species is it growing in, in symbiosis with? Mm -hmm. um, so apparently it's better to find ones that grow together with birch than, for instance, pine trees that are more common, in, in, at least in, in, in Northern Europe. Um, then it also has to do with the season. And now I want to go back to Petropavlovsk because I was there on the market uh, in the city and there was, uh, you know, like it's, it's a food market and there was one woman and she had only one thing to sell which was a very big, fantastic fly agaric somewhere. I have a picture of her. Um, <clears throat> and there was a day that we would fly back to Europe and I didn't know what to do with it and especially I couldn't speak with her. Um, so the only thing I understood that she was making like, like, you know, she was Gestures, waving her hands yeah. around her head and, you know, indicating that it makes you, it puts you in a special state of the mind, let's put it like that, very technically speaking. Mm -hmm. Very frustrating experience that I couldn't speak with her because <clears throat> she, you know, there obviously is something left of this culture and people still use it, but I don't know exactly why. But the, the, this mushroom I, it has a lot of very interesting connotations. Yeah. So um, one of them being the name Fliegenpilz, Flyagaric, Muchamor in, in Russian, Amanitumus in French. It's indicating that it has been used as an insecticide. And you can actually still buy uh, Flyagaric extracts as an insecticide in Russia. A friend of mine just last year sent me some pictures that he found mm -hmm. some of this but um, then this is a bit unclear so this this should be done again uh, in the in in Paris a French researcher at the university I think it's just called the University of Paris mm -hmm. well they, they tested this so they, they they made an insecticide they were they had flies and they, they they wanted to see if it really works that you can kill flies with the fly agaric because apparently you should like uh, um, mix it with milk and sugar and then the right. flies find it very attractive yeah. and they eat it and they die. So they tried this and they found that the flies are very attractive, they eat it and they fall on their back but they don't die because after like a, a certain amount of time they get back on their feet and fly off. They also go into a sleep, a comatose sleep. Very similar, exactly. So maybe the name has nothing to do with killing flies, right. but has to do with something else, which is, um, and that's a proposition made by uh, Valentina Pavlova Rossen and Gordon Rossen, who think that they, they wrote this amazing book about the etymology of uh, mushroom names, and the, um, not just, but it's called. Um, mushrooms, Russia, and history, and this fly agaric apparently has comes. The name comes from in, in the Middle Ages when people were crazy. It was believed that they had flies in the head, 
So the way to treat them would be to make a hole in the cranium so that the flies can come out. Wow, like trepidation. Yes, exactly. Interesting. <laughs> very, very interesting. And then what about, because you did an experiment where at the Hamburger Bahnhof in Berlin, which, I mean, I was sadly, I never saw it, but it sounds like the most incredible show to me. So you had 12 reindeers, no? Six of them you fed flygerite mushrooms to, the other six not, but it was a double blind experiment. It was double blind and even more than that because you, you didn't even know if they really, the ones if that had the mushroom, them. if they ate them. Okay. Maybe they didn't like them, but I did some photographs before with two uh, reindeers that I that I rented, so to say, from northern Sweden. Yeah. And I fed them fly agarics, just to see. And one of them, uh, the names, one was like called Sven and one was called Bengt. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember which one. But one of them didn't like to eat the mushroom and the other did. So. And did you see any sort of difference in behavior? No. Not at all. Nothing. They seem to be the same. But <laughs> I didn't want to, to go very far with that either. I just wanted to see. But so then you collected the, their urine and you kept it in refrigerators and people were, could stay in the, in the museum for a night, right? In, on a bed and yes. then take the urine if they, so far, if they wanted to. You kept the refrigerators unlocked during the, during the night. That's what I heard. Exactly, that's correct. So there were two groups of reindeers, six on one side, six on the other. On one side, they, they were fed fly agarics with, the, with their food, but you didn't know if they would really eat it or not. Mm -hmm. Then the urine from these two groups were collected. We had like a special device for that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the urine was actually made, uh, 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 made available, let's put it like this, for the people who were sleeping there in the middle of the reindeers because the bed was above them, looked like a big mushroom, like, a, yeah. like you know, the Kröne der Schöpfung a little bit, <laughs> but also at night because I slept there two or three times, it was amazing to hear the reindeers because Could they kind of woke up and they, they fought with their horns, which mm -hmm. they didn't do during the day. But we couldn't say <clears throat> that you were allowed to try this urine that was in these fridges that had glass doors so you could see. Um, they were on both, everything was very symmetrical. The bed was in the middle, reindeers on the one side and on the other side, fridges on behind and, and on the other side. So we couldn't say, please try the pee, but you know, word of mouth uh, made that you people knew, but then you didn't know which pee you would, should try or, um, or if there you know, if, if there was no effect, if it was because it was the wrong pee or... Did you hear from anyone having an incredible experience with that? Um, well, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it was mainly a proposition to go back to this original idea, uh, which has been proposed, especially by Gordon Ross in his book called Soma from 1968, that Soma for the Vedic people, uh, which is something between like has been, because that's a culture that uh, um, <clears throat> stopped or like uh, changed 15,000 years ago. Um, so this Soma that they praise so much is something between a god and a plant or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's very unclear 
what it is. They, but there's a good indication that it might have been the fly agaric that has been used in a very special way. Mm-hmm. So in this exhibition with the reindeers, we also used the pea of the two groups of the reindeers to treat the food of other animals that then during daytime you could watch and see if there would be a difference. So we had like 12 canaries <coughs> that six on one side, six on the other side, and they were on a kind of scale. So if, if like a huge scale, um, uh, so if the ones that maybe had an effect from the fly gallery would fly more, mm-hmm. say, then the scale would change and you could see, would see on the zeiger, how you say that, on the indicator. On the indicator, yeah. If there was a difference or not. Um, Amazing. And then we had some mice also that were allowed to reproduce uh, in the so two couples and at the end of the exhibition there were quite a few. And then we had two flies, one fly on this side and one fly on the other side that were in a small, not so small, like a, a glass container and fed with the pea and sugar. And? Then, you know, there was no scientist, so I don't know. Nobody was left was, to your own interpretation. Nobody was making any research, not the idea. Oh, a shame. So interesting. Okay, good. I'm going to be mindful of, of your time because I want to still ask you a few questions that I prepared. I ask all my guests these three questions. So the first one is, please tell me a moment in your life where you've been confronted with the harshness of reality. The harshness of reality? Um... You mean in terms of death? No, could could mean could mean anything. Could mean death, but it could also be, you know, anything else that's that's harsh, a loss, a failure, maybe an accident. Um, many many options to choose from. But isn't that happening every day when you wake up? If you perceive it that way, yes. It's it, it's interesting because it's that it's the onset of what you call consciousness. Because obviously, at night you're not really conscious and you're dreaming, and you're living another life. You're becoming a different person. You're doing extraordinary things. What did I dream again tonight? It was actually quite ah yes. There was a group of artists. Uh, it started with Maurizio Cattelan, funny enough, and then there was a, another guy. He was so funny. Liam Gillick was also there. Was only man, I think. Um, and this other guy, I try to remember his name, uh, but he was a, like an unknown artist. So these vary, like somebody who doesn't exist, I, I assume. Mm-hmm. I would, the name will come to me again if I think about it for a while. But I just want to say these very realistic scenarios um, that you uh, enter and, you know, you're part of, it must, it's, it's, there's no reason to believe this is, this is not as real as the conscious part um, in terms of life experience. So the harshness of reality, what we call reality, is what we perceive when you don't dream, so it's when you wake up. So do you feel when you wake up in the morning that it's a, is it a strong feeling? Is it a not so nice feeling? No, it's a very nice feeling. Well, sometimes it's not so nice because you just left a beautiful dream, but then what is not so nice is when it goes too quick, so you have to hurry because you have to right. do something. So what I do, and this I can only highly recommend to everybody, mm-hmm. is to try to stretch this moment as long as possible. 
because it's very productive when you're half asleep and half awake. So first of all, I take more time than I would need. So I take an extra hour that I get up earlier than necessary. And then I drink a very weak coffee in bed, but huge amounts of it. So like a big kind of bowl that I have a special cup for so it doesn't burn me. And I put it on my breast and I drink it like this. And I try to stretch the moment as long as possible. It's very productive. So the harshness of reality maybe starts in terms of harshness when this period is over and you say, oh, I have to answer this email. That's so interesting. So you sit in bed with a coffee. I lay in bed. You lay in bed for in a in a meditation. It's a kind of automatic meditation. Yeah. For an hour. Yes, one hour. Never heard of that. No, it's I invented it myself. It's not so complicated. (laughs) But I travel with my own coffee, my own equipment, and everything. And do you feel because I heard when you drink coffee the second that you wake up you're more likely to get a dip in the afternoon, to feel tired in the afternoon. Mm. Yeah, well, that's also the idea, because a siesta really is a fantastic a thing to do, because it cuts the day in two. <laughs> so basically, you have twice as long, at least, in, in terms of numbers of it's days. It's true. I also enjoy a siesta. <laughs> um, the second question is, please share a moment that has been completely surreal. And this can be in relation to psychedelics or, or not? Uh, there are so many, I don't know where to choose. But um, surreal, well, dreams are often surreal. But it's interesting that you can. So I've been working a lot with dreams, you know, I made these beds that you can sleep in a special way. But I also grew up in Belgium, which is a very surreal country because you see things happening there that you don't see in other countries. So surreal basically means irrational not not goal-oriented and uh, therefore allowing for the let's call it unconscious to unfold <coughs> and take its own way so but that's happening big and small all the time we have to give it time but there's no special moment for me there's no special moment that comes to you no, i mean the most surreal moment for everybody is birth when you're born and nobody I ever met and probably nobody you ever met remembers that moment. Why? Because it's so surreal in terms of extraordinary from the life you had before when you were still in the womb Sure. that you can't, you shouldn't remember. Uh, because but that's too surreal it's too strong. not to be traumatic. That's true. But there's not, there hasn't been one, I mean of course there have been many, but there hasn't been one that comes to your mind maybe even in recent years, something that just caught you really off guard, where you were just not sure, you know, what's happening in this moment? There are many things, but nothing I would uh, come up with right now. Have you had very intense psychedelic experiences? Yes, ketamine, that was strong. Only ketamine? I think that was the strongest by far. And you did it in a in a therapeutic setting? Or? No, I did it in my apartment with a Russian guy. And I speak so much about Russia today <laughs> in the 90s. I haven't done it since. I, I, I can't understand why people why people can take this in a recreational way. Yeah, it's very popular. Yeah, I don't know. Um, well, they must do something else. Because 
these experiences we had, they are very strong and they are, um, <clears throat> you know, they only last for half an hour and you're even like, as compared to other experiences, you're kind of aware of the time in some way. But again, like with the fly garlic, you're, you're immobilized, you cannot move anymore. So it's just the mind that is on and the body switched off because it's, you know, it's an anesthetic. And did you have, did you have realizations and conclusions about your life, or what was the overarching feeling of those trips? No, it was. Um, I don't think you can actually. I'm, I'm very skeptical about this that you can get insights through psychedelics. I think the the main insight you get is the limitations of your insight. That is already an insight in itself. So you can have extraordinary experiences like me under ketamine and being some kind of liquid that somehow came out of my body and was, uh, you know, <clears throat> spreading in the room and going over every possible object. So even the glasses laying in front of me on the table, I would go over this as a kind of like, a, like an oil film, very thin, very thin. But mm -hmm. then it continued on both sides and went out of the apartment and went on and on and on and then went over the whole earth and met again under the earth. Wow. That's pretty good. <laughs> that's, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. If, uh, if and I, you felt you were the oil, so you were feeling all of this. I was the oil. Mm -hmm. Wow. But I could also feel the, I, you know, I could feel the shape of my glasses, yeah. and I could feel the whole, everything. Incredible. But it's not an insight. It's, um, it's a way of seeing yourself in the world. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm skeptical about insights. I don't know, so many people say they had insights. I'm more like, the, the, the main insight has always been, wow, there's so much else out there okay. we have no idea about. I mean, I have to say that I have had, I've had very clear insights about what path I should take at certain moments. So I like to do psychedelics when I'm so Zwiespalt, no? If I, you know, if I have to do, make a decision, a big decision that I know will influence my life yeah. greatly, and that's usually when I like to, to to use psychedelics to help me kind of make the right decision. And what kind of psychedelic are you talking about? My favorite are mushrooms. But you mean uh, psilocybin? Psilocybin containing mushrooms. Yes. yes. Not the fly Gary. Mm. <laughs> psilocybin containing mushrooms. And Mexico. Because some psychedelics, if you want to call them it is, like say alcohol and also especially maybe marijuana, is the opposite. It gives you an insight, but when you're sober again, you know this is exactly what you shouldn't do. I, mean, I don't think that alcohol falls under the umbrella of psychedelic. Mm, well, marijuana might especially when you take large quantities. But I'm more talking about the you know, plant psychedelics, um, mushrooms, ayahuasca, DMT, ibogaine, all of, all of these types of, I mean, even acid. Mm. Um, yeah, so that, that, was my, that was my experience of it. But I guess it's, you know, it's different for everyone. And uh, I've never experimented with ketamine, so I'm not sure, not sure about the feeling of, of that one. But 
I mean, I know that a lot of people, it's, it's used now in clinics around America for people that also struggle with severe depression and anxiety. And apparently it's the most fast-acting psychedelic. So if you're really in a hole, that's what you're supposed to do to kind of rip you out of it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I totally, you know, I think you're right in the sense that it helps you to find right decisions because it gives you a way to step away from your usual being. Right. Which is very helpful. Yeah. Maybe not that there's somebody taking you by the hand and saying, Milana, that's the way you should go. Mm-hmm. But more that you step away yourself from the constraints that you usually carry around. Yeah. So it gives you more clear side, but it's not the same as inside. But I find what it reveals truly is your... Because at the end of the day, everything is within us. And we just don't give ourselves the quiet and the space to, to really listen. But I think we, we have the answer inside. And as you said, like taking a psychedelic, it helps you. Yeah, it's step away out of your constraints. But in the end, it's, it's a window into yourself. At the same time, it's also like a lot of try and error. <clears throat> and then sometimes the best decisions you make are kind of, you know, stupid decisions like that you didn't think about. Because if you would have thought about it, you wouldn't have done it. But then 10 years later, it turns out this was actually really one of the greatest things you could do. Yeah. Because you wouldn't have done it if you would have thought about it properly, with or without psychedelics. Because you were thinking like of the complications and the implications and the economics, I don't know, and all these kind of things. So what I mean is like, psychedelics give you a way to step away from yourself, that's the one thing. But like a Bauch, like a, or even like a Schnapps idea, <laughs> which is like a, really stupid idea that is not based on any proper thought or anything, just a kind of spontaneous thing like this, can turn out to be very good because it's very liberating, because it takes away all the cost and benefit analysis that we normally base our lives upon. Mm-hmm. I could go on about this topic, it's my absolute <laughs> favorite conversation. We'll but do it in the next episode. We'll do it in the next episode. So the last of the three questions is if you could choose to exist as a plant, which one would it be? A plant? A plant. Plants are tragic because they're sitting, I mean, from, from our perspective, yeah. we, you know, animals, anima, like animated, they move. <coughs> and, and for us, the plant is like, it's as if you would have a severe disease that stops you from moving. But then that's, of course, not true at all because that this inability to move makes the plant ingenious in so many other ways because what you can gain through movement you can also gain through uh, from if you come from a completely different um, approach to the world by being sedentary you can also get very far so I don't know I would love to be a plant but I don't know which one but if you think about it in terms of you know, where does the plant live? What does the plant need? Does it need a lot of sun? Does it need a lot of love? Is it a family plant? So like, usually people will answer something that's native to their hometown or 
um, you know, that has characteristics that they feel are similar mm. in, a, in a vague way. I, I, I would, if you give me the chance to be a plant for one day or one year, I would take it, but I wouldn't say I want to be this kind of plant. Okay. I would just love to be, to know, I know it's impossible, but, you know, it starts with another human being, you know. I would love to be another human being for just one day, just to see how it is. If it's really so similar as we think it is, because yeah. I'm not sure about that. Me neither. So <clears throat> when it comes to the plant, you know, like it's so out of our understanding that it doesn't matter if it's, if it's a plant that's short-lived, long-lived, if it's tall or, or small, if it's related to me or not. But it would be such a different life form. And what's your favorite terrain? Terrain. Terrain, as in, do you like the desert? Do you like, uh, you know, the ocean, the forest? Do you have a, do you have a preference? Yeah, but it's like you know, you you, you don't want to have only one thing. That's my conclusion. So I live in Sweden and I live in West Africa, mm -hmm. so I have two extremes, and that um, actually really extreme in terms of people, climate, terrain, as you call it, everything. Yeah. And I love these two things at the same time. If I would need to decide mountain versus sea, I would probably choose sea, but you know, just because the food is better. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, I won't pressure you anymore with that one. <laughs> okay, so I've got four or five questions. The point is to answer them in just a few sentences. I'm very bad at this, as you can see. <laughs> no, we're going to just give it a go because I'm sure you're going to have some, some good answers here. So what's the most unexpected human interaction that you've seen with one of your works at an exhibition? I never look at other people's reactions. No? No. That's the whole point. I want to take the scientist out of it. So you never walk around, you know, an opening and, and observe? No, I don't even want to know what they think. Interesting. Okay. So. Because your work is so interactive, so I'm sure there must have been some funny situations. I'm sure, but we have to ask then. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from sliding, what do you do to lose control? Sleep. Very good. Succinct. What life lesson took you the longest to learn? A life lesson? Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> it's, a no it's a difficult one mm. yeah as in like could also be something to do with you know a, a quality that you would like to have like speaking Japanese no like patience oh. or I think you can have every quality you want it's up to you is there something that you have not yet achieve that you really want to? Speaking Japanese. Are you, you're a language talent. No, you have no, 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 I don't think so. My brother is much better, for instance. Uh, he speaks well. I speak, you know, he, he have a German accent. Uh, I, I can only speak German, actually. No, you speak English, German, Swedish. Yes. French. French. Some Dutch. Dutch? I mean, look at you. It's incredible. I'm sure you'll be able to learn Japanese. It takes time. <laughs> time and practice. 
Okay, the last one is if you could create one law that everyone in the world needed to follow, what would it be? This I think about quite often, actually. Really? <laughs> Good, I'm happy. Like, thought starts like this. If I would be a dictator, <laughs> I would. But now I can't remember what is like kind of stupid things. But for instance, like music in public spaces or things like that. I would definitely forbid it. <clears throat> in all public spaces? Yeah, like it's just an example, you know, like uh, yeah. things like like glass frames in bright red or blue color. I would forbid that. <laughs> like, All right. You know, I have a whole list of these. Well, if you can think of more, then send them my way. I would be very <laughs> interested to hear the laws of Karstip. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. This has been incredible. And before you go, I just want to ask one more question, which is what life experience would you recommend that everyone has? I don't have so many, you know, I, I, I tend to see myself as an inventor, so I'm constantly trying to invent things, but um, I didn't come up with so many things. So I think drinking coffee in this way in the morning is a very good thing, and also be tea, of course. It depends on your taste, it's roughly the same thing. <clears throat> but um, I'm also very interested in food, and I think that's, mm -hmm something that you, I don't know, I think we think about it still kind of in a very strange way. It has such an impact on how you feel, not just while you eat it, but also in, in general. Yeah. That, uh, Absolutely. I, yeah. Let so, thy food be thy medicine. Yes. So, I don't know if, if, uh, if you know, but I opened a restaurant in Stockholm, which is called Brutalisten, where we try to make brutalist food, which is one ingredient uh, dishes. No, of, I mean, of course I know because Alex, um, he was there. He, he, yeah, and they did the furniture for it. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know how much you speak about. All the time. <laughs> no, of course, of yes. course. No, and, and he loved it. He told me that uh, you had a wonderful dinner there mm. not so long ago. Yeah. So I think that's something that I would also forbid as a dictator. It's like small flowers on top of our big pile of ingredients on your dish. Like you know, the flowers are symbolic in the sense that you can't stop piling up stuff as if it would get better. It's so disrespectful so to you're the not, ingredient. You're not a big fan of, of fine dining? No, it, no I don't want to, you know, that's wrong to say I'm not, I, I, I can truly enjoy it. But this has been done and or is done in a very good way. But then this, the other side of the spectrum, where you try to focus on the one ingredient cuisine, mm -hmm. is uh, not very well explored, except maybe some countries like, you know, say Spain, Italy, Japan. But you see a trend of combination where mm -hmm. the chef is becoming like a mini god, trying to make things taste better than they already do. Right. Which I'm very skeptical about. So if I cook at home, I often cook very brutalist because I want to find a good product to eat and I want to eat it as it is by cooking it, of course, but not by mixing it up with all kind of other stuff. It has to be very good quality. Yeah, sometimes it cannot be nice to try something, you know. It doesn't have to be always the best quality. Simple things can be good too. 
Is it going well, Brutalism? Yes, you have to come and eat there too. Absolutely. I love Stockholm. Come. And we'll do that. Thank you, Karsten. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Lila.